Chapter 108 of the Ontario Reader's Third Book by the Ontario Ministry of Education. Read for LibriVox.org by Lucy Burgoyne. The Barren Lands by E. B. Osborne. Long before the treeless wastes are reached, the forests cease to be forests except by courtesy. The trees black and white spruce, the Canadian larch and the grey pine, willow, alder, etc., have an appearance of youth, so that the traveller would hardly suppose them to be more than a few years old, at first sight. Really this juvenile appearance is a species of second childhood, for on the shores of the Great Bear Lake Four centuries are necessary for the growth of a trunk not as thick as a man's wrist. The further north, the more lamentably decrepit becomes the appearance of these woodlands, until presently their sordidness is veiled by thick growths of grey lichens, the caribou moss, as it is called, which clothe the trunks and hang down from the shriveled boughs and still further north the trees become more stunted stems, set with blighted buds that have never been able to develop themselves into branches, until finally the last vestiges of arboreal growth takes refuge under a thick carpet of lichens and mosses, the characteristic vegetation of the barren grounds. Nothing more dismal than the winter aspect of these wastes can be imagined. The northern forests are silent enough in winter time, but the silence of the barren grounds is far more profound. Even in the depths of midwinter, the northwestern bush has voices and is full of animal life. The bark and cry of the crows. These birds are the greatest imaginable nuisance to the trapper, whose baits they steal even before his back is turned, is still heard. The snowbirds and other small-winged creatures are never quiet between sunset and sunrise. The jackrabbit, whose black bead-like eye betrays his presence among the snowdrifts in spite of his snow-white fur, is common enough, and the childlike wailing of the coyotes is heard every night. But with the exception of the shriek of the snow owl or the yelping of a fox emerge from his lair, there is no sound of life during seven or eight or nine months of winter on the barren grounds. Unless the traveller is able to hear the rushing sound, some can hear it others cannot, of the shifting northern lights. In May, however, when the snows melt and the swamps begin to thaw, the barren grounds become full of life. To begin with, the sky is literally darkened with enormous flights of wild fowl, whom instinct brings from the southern reaches of the Mississippi and as tributaries to these sub-arctic wildernesses, where they find an abundance of food, and at the same time build their nests and rear their young in safety. 
The snow geese are the first to arrive. Next come the common and eider duck. After them the great northern black and red-throated divers. And last of all the pintail and the long-tailed ducks. Some of these go no further than just beyond the outskirts of the forest region. Others, flying further northward, lay their eggs in the open on the moss. Eagles and hawks prey on these migratory hosts. Troops of ptarmigan, they are said to go to no place where the mercury does not freeze. Seek food among the stunted willows on the shores of the lakes and sloughs, and in sunny weather the snow-bunting's song is heard. Soon after the arrival of the migratory birds, the wilderness becomes newly clothed in green and grey. The snow, which never once thaws during the long winter, forms a safe protection for vegetable life. As soon as the lengthening summer's day has thawed this coverlet of snows, vegetation comes on at a surprising rate of weak sunshine on the wet soil, completely transforming the aspect of the country. It is then that the caribou leave their winter quarters in the forest region and journey to the barren grounds. Just as the prairies might have been called buffalo land thirty years ago, and the intervening in forested country may still be styled moose land, not that the moose is nearly so common, in Saskatchewan and Athabasca, as it was before the rebellion of 1885, opened up that country, so from the hunter's point of view, caribou land would be an exceedingly apt name for the tundra of Greater Canada. Only the Indians and the Eskimos, the former living on the confines of the forests, and the latter along the far Arctic coasts, visit these territories, and but for the presence of the vast herds of caribou. It is pretty certain that such mosquito-haunted wastes would never be trodden by man. It is true that the musk-ox is an important inhabitant of the wastes, but the numbers of that strange beasts, which seems to be half sheep, half ox, are not nearly so great and there are reasons to believe that it is being slowly but surely driven from its ancient pastures by the caribou, just as, in so many parts of the world, the nations of the antelope have receded before the deer tribes. E. B. Osborn, Greater Canada End of Section 108 this recording is in the public domain.